Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded podcast. If you watched the fantastic BBC Wales documentary, The Rugby Codebreakers, a couple of weeks ago, and if you didn't, you can find the iPlayer link on my website. One of the issues that was mentioned but not really explored was, why is Rugby Union the national game of Wales and not Rugby League? It's something that's intrigued me for as long as I've been watching rugby. When I was little, my dad and me would watch what was then called the Five Nations on BBC's Saturday afternoon grandstand. What was going on, I wondered. Why was a ball kicked into touch so often? Why did players let the ball go when they were tackled? And why was Wales, the home of some of my favourite rugby league players, such as Clive Sullivan, Colin Dixon and David Watkins, playing such strange rules? It seemed that Wales was playing the wrong type of rugby. So what I want to talk about today is why didn't Wales play the same game as their Northern English cousins instead of that of their Southern English rulers? After all, throughout the 19th century, Welsh rugby had more in common with Northern rugby than any other rugby playing region. As in the North, the Welsh game had been started by the privately educated middle classes, but it quickly captured the imagination of industrial workers who flocked to the towns and villages of South Wales at the end of the 19th century. As in the north of England, this brought problems. Men used to work in five and a half days a week in a mine or steelworks believed that hard work deserved financial reward, off or on the pitch. Although the leaders of Welsh rugby supported the RFU's imposition of amateurism in 1886, Welsh clubs were already secretly paying players, according to Swansea and Wales winger Bill McCutcheon, who later went north to play for Oldham. Pound notes would mysteriously appear in a player's boots after a match, so-called boot money. But in the north of England, crowds were bigger and rewards much more lucrative for ambitious Welsh players. What's more, there was a natural bond between South Wales and the north of England. Both were dominated by heavy industry. Coal mining defined the economies of both regions and rugby was the spectator sport of the masses. They also played the game in the same attacking spirit. Just as the Welsh invented the 4-3 quarter system, Yorkshire sides introduced tactical innovations such as defined positions for forwards, wing forward play and passing moves from the base of the scrum. Links quickly formed between the two regions in which rugby was industrial, inclusive and innovative. This link was cemented on and off the field. In 1884 alone, Wakefield Trinity, Batley, Dewsbury and Hull visited Cardiff, Clanethley, Newport and Neath. Visiting sides from the north would be met with outpourings of civic celebration, as Clanethley forward Elias Jones remembered. Hull were especially popular visitors, and I remember that the horses were taken out of the coach in which they were to travel, and the coach dragged to the Thomas Arms by the people who had gathered to welcome them. It was a remarkable sight, for many had secured cotton waste from the works and lit this to form a torchlight procession. Arriving at the Thomas Arms, there were scenes of great enthusiasm, and the Hull captain had to make a speech from the balcony. The first Welsh player known to have gone north seems to have been Clanethley's international fullback Harry Bowen, who signed for Dewsbury in 1884 but went back home after a handful of games. The first Welsh player to make a real impact in the north, however, was Cardiff and Wales halfback Buller Stadden, who along with his teammate Angus Stewart went to Dewsbury in September 1886. According to Stadden, He and Stewart were unemployed in Cardiff, so, he explained to the Yorkshire Post, Having made a few friends during Dewsbury's tour of the Principality, they naturally steered for Yorkshire and got employment and a place in the Dewsbury team. They had been lucky enough to find jobs at a woollen spinning factory called Newsome, Sons and Spedding. 
It was, of course, sheer coincidence that Mark Newsom, one of the sons in the company title, was also the president and former captain of the Dewsbury Rugby Club. Across the Pennines, Oldham set the pace by signing Bill McCutcheon in 1888, swiftly followed by his fellow Welsh international, Di Gwynne. Perhaps the most famous Welsh signings, however, were the brilliant brothers David and Devon James, who transferred from Swansea to Manchester's Broughton Rangers in 1892 for a reputed signing on fee of £250, in complete violation of the RFU's amateur regulations. Some Welsh players would even advertise openly in northern newspapers. General Clark requires a situation, knowledge of French, highest references, wing three-quarter Welsh team, read one advertisement from 1893 in the Yorkshire Post. Welsh clubs also responded to the Northern threat by offering their star players inflated, expensive and attractive jobs. For some players, the business networks of leading Welsh clubs offered greater opportunities for social mobility, one benefit that the Northern clubs could not match. But the desire of working-class players to be paid and the ability of clubs in Yorkshire and Lancashire to pay them ultimately forced the Welsh Rugby Union to turn a blind eye to payments to players – and sooner or later, it was inevitable that they would clash head-on with the RFU in England. When the crisis finally came, it concerned the player who had become the symbol of Welsh rugby's rise to glory. Born in 1864, Arthur Gould made his debut for Newport as a teenager and led its all-conquering side of the early 1890s. He captained Wales to the Triple Crown in 1893, and the unprecedented success of the Welsh national team catapulted him into becoming a national celebrity. In 1896, after captaining Wales to their third victory over England, the South Wales Argus and the South Wales Daily News started a testimonial fund for him. Money poured in from across Wales. So much money was collected that the Welsh Rugby Union bought Gould's house with the proceeds and gave it back to him as a gift. The RFU declared this to be a violation of its amateur regulations. In protest, the Welsh withdrew from Rugby Union's international board. It seemed that it was now only a matter of time before an 1895-style split took place between Wales and the RFU. But both sides hesitated. The RFU realised that if it expelled Wales, it would weaken international rugby union, strengthen the new Northern Union and deal another blow to the authority of the RFU. Confronted with the stark choice of undermining itself by enforcing its amateur rules and expelling Wales, or fudging its amateur principles to maintain its authority, the RFU chose to do the latter. RFU Secretary Roland Hill admitted that the decision was a question of expediency. F.E. Smith, the future Cabinet Minister Lord Birkenhead, openly admitted in the Times that the decision was made to prevent the great accession of strength to the Northern Union which would have followed had the Welsh Union been driven into their arms. The RFU declared that, although Gould was guilty of professionalism by accepting the gift of his house, exceptional circumstances meant that he would not be banned from rugby, the fate that all other transgressors of the amateur regulations suffered. The Gould Compromise therefore defined the relationship between Welsh rugby and the RFU for the next century. Provided that sufficient decorum was maintained, the RFU would not look too closely at Welsh affairs, and Welsh clubs would continue to make undercover boot money payments to working-class players. As long as the Welsh clubs pretended not to pay their players, the RFU would pretend to believe them. The Welsh Rugby Union's softness on the rules of amateurism was the crucial factor in keeping the game in Wales unified across all the classes and avoiding a replay of the 1895 Northern Union split. 
But ironically, it was actually the Northern Union that enabled rugby union to become the dominant national sport of Wales. The 1895 split weakened the England rugby union team so severely that between 1899 and 1909, Wales defeated England 10 times in 11 matches. Even the one they didn't win ended in a draw. So Wales' ability to consistently beat England was a vital factor in making rugby union the Welsh national game, something that would not have been possible if English rugby had not split and had remained unified. Ultimately, the leaders of Welsh rugby decided that their loyalty was to the privately educated middle classes who ran the RFU, rather than to the miners and steelworkers who were the backbone of the game in South Wales. They hoped that they had locked rugby league out of Wales, but they could not stop many hundreds of Welsh players going north to openly earn the rewards that their rugby talents richly deserved, and to grace the game of rugby league wherever it was played. The Welsh nation may have been playing the wrong type of rugby, but the countless Welsh players who went north knew that they had made the right choice and were playing the right game. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Rugby Reloaded podcast. If you want to follow me on Twitter, my Twitter name is at Collins Tony. And if you want to dig a bit deeper into the history of rugby and the other football codes, take a look at the Rugby Reloaded website at www.rugbyreloaded.com. Next week, we'll be looking at how the rules of rugby league emerged and why, in some respects, the league is closer to the original rules of rugby. Until then, thanks for listening.